We're super excited because we've got a double whammy today. We're fortunate enough to have Anthony Buglavine and Donnell Baird agree to join us on today's podcast. Hi, gentlemen. I'm really excited to talk to you. It's always uh, such a pleasure and inspiring to be able to spend any time with Donnell. We've been through a lot since we first met. I don't even know how many years ago. I feel the same way, Anthony. Full disclosure, Anthony was my professor in business school at Columbia. And since then, he's been a friend and mentor. I was a terrible student. I, I failed a class in business school, if you can believe that, Anthony. But not, not yours, another class. But it's always great to be with you. Well, I can't believe it because of all the students I had as an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, you were the one who was there. You knew why you were there and you were there to get what you needed to get out of it. And you weren't going to spend an extra minute doing anything else, which I totally respected. Um, Not a minute. Not a minute. But but I really like you. You had a sense of mission and vision. And it's so inspiring now to look back and and see where that's led you. Because, um, you know, I've got a sense that you were showing up if something was going to be helpful for you to be able to put this vision into practice. And, uh, you know, and moving on and making it happen. And I think that's what that's the kind of focus and drive it takes. So um, really was you know, excited to meet you then. And of course, just so excited for you in terms of everything that's happening with Block Power since. And thank you for not failing me. Okay, cool. I remember hearing an anecdote about you being somewhat confrontational um, in one of your business school cases. And I think that speaking truth to power like that is exactly why people are so excited about block power now. And, you know, Danelle, for someone who was rejected more than 200 times by institutional investors before finding willing investors that actually help you create your vision for block power, how has the recent increase in crowdfunding changed the way that you're thinking about raising capital? We were really focused on crowdfunding as a as a potential, like theoretical strategy to have regular Americans invest in resolving and addressing climate change in their local communities. And so, you know, as MBAs are prone to do, it's like this beautiful like idea on a whiteboard that kind of makes sense, but then you gotta, you gotta put it into practice in the real world. And that was really hard. And for a variety of reasons, there's regulatory stuff, You know, there was no raise green back in 2015 when we wanted to really try to do this the first go round. In 2017, when we wanted to do it the second go round, it really was the fact that raise green is here and is effective and that block power now has a track record of um, greenhouse gas reduction and low income buildings in the real world that allowed us to to have the opportunity to to run a successful crowdfunding campaign. And I got to say, it's really transformed uh, the way we're thinking about our business. I mean, we, you know, we're continuing to talk to venture capitalists. I got, uh, I got rejected yesterday. I won't, I won't name the firm. They, they said that our, our business is still too early, but they want to stay in touch and they want us to do a podcast or whatever. The rejection still totally hurts. But then I just like logging onto the Raise Green website, like, oh, we're at $750,000 of crowdfunding. We, who cares about what this VC thinks? We're totally going to replace them and make them totally obsolete. So um, it's, it's fantastic. That's, that's awesome. I uh, love it. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the energy, the, the feelings mutual, uh, so impressed with, with how it's going and, and what you all have done to tell the story and get it out into, into the world in such a meaningful way. Um, this, this is kind of a question for both of y'all, but um, how is crowdfunding different from traditional investing 
And how do you think it's better suited for startups like Block Power or other developers and climate entrepreneurs that are focused on developing clean energy infrastructure? So now I'll let you answer the, what it means for the climate entrepreneurs. I'm happy to, to cover what it more means more generally for the impact investing industry, if that's helpful. Yeah, maybe I'll start. You know, I think um, the context here for me and the work I've been doing is is the whole broader field of impact investing, which within which the your platform and and this crowdfunding conversation takes place. And that is this really simple idea that on one hand is completely banal, on the other hand is proven to be quite revolutionary. And that is, you know, impact investing, as I think about it, is this basic idea that a for-profit investment can be both a morally acceptable and economically efficient way to solve social and environmental problems. Uh, the idea that your investments shouldn't only target financial return for yourself, uh, but also should be seeking to make a difference on the social issues you care about. And on one hand, um, that sounds obvious, and it's actually quite intuitive. Most people who you talk to about these things say, well, of course, when I make an investment, I want to both make money. I also want to have the world be better for my kids. That just totally makes sense. But it goes against, and to be honest, it's, it's, it's the way people did think for a long time. But over the last 50, 60 years, especially in the United States, there's been this dominant ideology that says you should separate what you do with your investments, which is to make money. And then if you're fortunate enough to make money, give some of that money away, or maybe you pay taxes and the government solves social problems. And so, you know, impact investing in general is this idea that we can actually fundamentally change how um, we think about investing. And when we coined the phrase impact investing in 2007, we were very intentional that it's a phrase that holds two meanings. On one hand, it's investments that have an impact. So if you invest into block power and block power, greens a building in Brooklyn and all the great benefits to the climate, to the people who live in those buildings, their health, their finances, that has an impact. But we also thought about impact investing as having the ability to impact the way investing is done. And so the bigger ambition was that it wouldn't just be a way to unlock some money for great companies like Block Power, uh, but it would also be a way to fundamentally transform how capitalism and investments work. And I think we've always known that for the transformative vision to be realized, impact investing had to be accessible to more than just very wealthy investors or the kind of large financial institutions that do most of the investing. It could only be part of a movement building systems change effort if many more investors could get into it. And, and as Donnell said, what's so inspiring now about the platform you guys have and others, um, this didn't exist. You know, when we coined the phrase impact investing in 2007, by law, someone without obscene amounts of money i couldn't actually uh, wasn't allowed to invest in companies like block power the fact that we can go on your platform and with you know 20 dollars make this investment creates the possibility that this really can engage the broader movement i didn't know you know for, for and danelle's work has always been built on an understanding that whatever overlay you're putting on it at the end of the day this is about community organizing and this is about bringing people together crowdfunding creates the opportunity that that becomes possible when many more people can become impact investors in the case of Donnell can buy a little piece of the block power dream, which I think from a psychological perspective and from a community building perspective is such an amazing asset for a company like his to be able to mobilize something bigger than just the work that they do. For me, you know, I started reading in uh, a bunch of history books and taking classes on the black civil rights movement. And it was a bunch of young people who were in college, you know, dropped out, formed the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, collaborated with Dr. King and others to raise capital from labor unions, right, from foundations 
but also from churches. So they would go into like Alabama or Mississippi where there'd be sharecroppers, right? And farmers in rural Mississippi who would go to church and they'd have a civil rights meeting in the church on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. And then they pass around a collection plate and people will contribute in order to build a better world for black people in this country. Like these people didn't have much, but they contributed there. And as someone who was raised in the church, um, you know, I grew up going to church every Sunday, you pass around the collection plate in a black in, in many kinds of black churches. I was a Pentecostal, um, but you know, same thing in Baptist church. You pass around the collection plate and that helps to fund the operations of the church. You pay your heat bill, your light bill, you pay the secretary, you pay the pastor, like the pastor's mortgage, like church mortgage. Like it is crowdfunding. It's crowdfunding. And so growing up with that experience in the black church and then seeing how relevant the black church was to black civil rights and the central political achievement of politics in America, I believe, which is, you know, getting women and black people the right to vote, that the black church and their crowdfunding methods were central to that. It just seemed to me to be a really powerful idea to try to apply that to solving the problem of clean energy. So once I was at Columbia Business School and I talked to the CEO of a really large solar company that was doing amazing things in solar. And I was like, look, will you finance solar panel installations in low-income buildings in the neighborhood where I was a community organizer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, where Mike Tyson's from? And he was like, no. And I was like, why not? You got an amazing company. Why can't you do this? And he's like, well, you know, the, the, the credit worthiness of, of, of buildings in, the, in, in, the, in this community, it's too low income. Our lenders that we borrow capital from can't do it. Then the, the thought was, okay, crowdfunding has been such a powerful, you know, theme and source of strength and resiliency for African-Americans throughout our history. Like, well, if, if, if this guy and his climate and impact investors won't fund solar in this low income neighborhood, then we got to crowdfund it. And so for me, like that is the context of why this, this, this crowdfunding campaign on Raise Green is so powerful because if traditional financial markets and entrepreneurs can't uh, or won't uh, finance the clean energy that we need all over this country in low-income communities, by the way, if there's 30 million unemployed Americans, that's a lot of low-income people in low-income communities across the country who need solar and everything else, energy efficiency. It's really powerful to be able to tap into this central idea of crowdfunding, which has deep, deep roots in the Black church and the community showing up to pay for activism, to pay for picnics, to, to buy a new church building. Uh, Black churches, you know, crowdfund to give scholarships to local kids who are about to go away to college. They'll buy the textbooks and pay the tuition to help the parents, like this is central. And so all we're doing is applying that to the problem of clean energy. And oh, by the way, we're gonna give you your money back with a five and a half percent return. So we're really excited about it. I think it's totally on point. I mean, there's a lot of implicit uh, power dynamics in that narrative that you wove, Danelle, uh, about community organizing and, and the power of self-organization. Uh, this idea of crowdfunding really isn't anything new, right? There's nothing more, you know, American than like a bake sale or a barn raising or passing the hat at a church. Uh, and what I 
think is really interesting is that you know people are have a natural proclivity to to giving to things that they care about and if we can organize that around the most powerful thing that's ever existed in finance which is the Delaware Corporation and all of the rights and protections if we can give those tools to that spirit of giving for common good at the local level, I think we're onto a very powerful thing in circular finance, which is that, you know, if you're fine donating $100 to the church, why, why wouldn't you be fine with investing $100 for an energy efficiency upgrade to the church that will return your money and then you could turn around and donate it if it's successful, or you could reinvest it in another church. And so I think those are just really eloquent themes. I, I thank you for sharing that narrative. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, thank you, right? Like, what could be more American than this, right? Like, you talk about barn raising. It's not just the Black church. It's all sectors of our society. In America, we have a powerful citizenship sector. That is a counterbalance to our government, you know, at the federal and state and local level. And then there's the private sector. And, and what Raise Green is allowing us to do is this is the tool for us to tap into the American traditions in the civic sector like this is how the civic sector has raised money for hundreds of years in america and there's lots of institutions that are based on this the barn raising wedding you know whatever um and and i think it's really powerful what you guys have built and so i think all of us are trying to tap into this current of like what is an american tradition and we're like digitizing it and turning it into an impact instrument and I think it's going to be a really, really powerful current. Absolutely. By all means. And we here are at Raise Green are 100% dedicated to making it uh, a fully accessible tool that is as easy to use as we can make it. You know, each successive project gets makes the next one easier. And, and the, the power of each one, teach one, you know, and sharing the knowledge equity that comes from having uh, having access to capital, but also access to tools to capture that powerful company structure and apply collective action around climate solutions and social inequality, frankly, um, that, that is so in dire need of, of being addressed urgently. Uh, that's, that's what drives us. So I do want to ask Anthony a question. Um, in an interview, Anthony, uh, that you gave on money and meaning, you spoke about the history of impact investing, saying that investments should not only pursue profits, but also social purpose. So do you think that companies like Danell's, like Block Power, uh, ones that can simultaneously pursue profits and social improvement are on the rise? Um, and, you know, is this, is this uh, the future of finance? There's no doubt that... Um more and more of the smartest, most ambitious people in the world are rejecting the idea that you have to choose to either go into this just for making money or solve challenges. And I think, you know, Black Power is just an incredibly inspiring example of an organization that has a very compelling business thesis and is addressing a multi-trillion dollar market with products and services that, you know, I really hope is going to make Donnell and the Black Power team and their investors incredibly wealthy. And the reason I hope that is not just because, you know, I like them, but because in doing that, they also are going to be improving health, improving the, the climate, making life better for so many people in so many different dimensions. And 
that really is something that can happen in the case of an organization like Block Power without having to trade off one or the other. So there's no doubt that if you look at where the smartest people and the most focused people are going, it's, it's more and more into this work. And then, you know, alongside that, you have to build the entire industry that supports that because our, our systems are still set up to either channel your energy into making money or channel your energy into giving away your money. So we need the educational systems to shift and help train people from the jump to be doing this kind of work and not trying to force you to choose between being a nonprofit person or for-profit person. My organization, Nonprofit Finance Fund, we give out loans. We're a nonprofit. We hire bankers. We also hire social workers. I mean, the whole world is so much more um, complicated. We also need the legal system to catch up because the laws around investments have, since the 1930s, been focused on protecting investors from being swindled by anyone who wants to manage their money for any purpose other than making money. Um, that impulse regulatory is completely incompatible with what you guys are trying to build and with what all the investors are investing through your platform into Block Power want to be doing with their money. They don't just want to be making money, although they certainly hope to. Uh, they also want to be solving social problems. So our whole regulatory system needs to catch up. And I think one thing that's exciting, you know, as Dan mentioned, when he started Block Power, he couldn't have been doing this crowdfunding. One of the reasons is because the laws had to change. And there was a movement. Uh, one of the people who pushed that movement was a couple, Gene and Steve Case, the founders of AOL. They were really active in um, creating, pushing a law in the Obama administration that made crowdfunding possible. But it really came up against the entire regulatory infrastructure for investing that says, well, hold on now. We don't want regular people to be investing in these kinds of speculative companies because we want to protect them from losing their money. Well, that might have made sense in the 40s and 50s, but it doesn't make sense when you've got incredible entrepreneurs like Danelle who want to be connected to the community in this way. So I think the ambition is there. More and more people are making it work, but we're still at a point where people have to work against the existing systems to be able to realize their ambitions. Um, as more of the law comes in and the platforms come in, imagine what's going to be possible when people like Danelle can just focus on running kick-ass businesses and solving these social problems with a set of systems, including the investment infrastructure that supports them rather than having to swim against the tide to make that happen. Yeah, I, I appreciate you acknowledging how, how recent these changes are, Anthony, because, you know, for from 1933 to 2016, this wasn't possible for retail investors to directly invest in companies like this. Um, and so I think there's there's something that has been cracked open in a way, and there, there was a lot of friction. And I think that, for example, like the raise we're seeing at Block Power, the friction, it's like a pebble rolling downstream. It's getting rounder and rounder. And, and we're at a point now where um, it's becoming easier. There's still friction, but I think uh, there's a lot of momentum in, in this direction. And you also hit on something about corporate structures. You know, I think there's a tension in the nonprofit world against the for-profit world. Uh, you're either a nonprofit person or a for-profit person, and you know, there it's almost like a battle of good and evil in some sense. Um, and rightfully so, there's been a lot of tension between those two different communities and ideologies. And but I think there's such unreasonable expectations against nonprofits, right? If you if you spend more than five percent of your <laughs> or your overhead on staff, then, then you're like a bad nonprofit. But if a corporation spends 90% of their overhead, then they make 10% profit and they're celebrated. So I think um, saying what kind of fluid uh, organizations can you create? Can a nonprofit create a for-profit subsidiary that can harness some of these other benefits um, in terms of capital formation? Uh, because at the end of the day, it's all raising money, uh, whatever organization structure you choose. Um, the, you know, I think to both Danelle and Anthony, one of the largest areas of uncertainty and competition 
Um, and a massive source of greenwashing in impact investing is the use of impact metrics to show social performance. Um, how do you think companies can take steps in the right direction to provide reliable metrics, specifically around social impact that investments are having that are actually meaningful and in easy to interpret for investors? This is absolutely a crucial point. I would be so disappointed if we look back in 20 years and say that impact investing, the result of impact investing was we helped a bunch of rich people feel better about themselves without solving social problems. And, the, and that's going to happen if we allow the investors and the people who make investment decisions to place money on behalf of, of the people who want their investments to have an impact into companies and, and other organizations that ultimately don't really make a difference, but just tell a nice story. So I think the, the onus is really on the, the, the people making the investments. It's the owners of capital who have to be discerning. You can't expect the companies or the, the nonprofits you're investing in to, you know, put a lot of energy and effort into setting up, you know, incredibly complicated reporting systems. If the investors aren't going to then allocate their capital to the more effective organizations. So I think it's really, it's on the investors to be discerning. If investors were discerning, then I think the market would, um, you know, would, would move toward being able to prove impact more effectively. This is a huge challenge. I am um, the founder and on the board of an organization called the Global Impact Investing Network. Um, we've been working for 10, more than 10 years now to create standard ways to at least define the impact you're having. And, and we're on the verge of being able to not only create standards for describing impact, but really create, a, I think, a step change improvement in how companies and nonprofits manage their impact and, and ultimately enable investors to compare the impacts different organizations are having. Um, you know, it's, it's complicated. I, I, I reject the idea that you can ever simplify all of reporting so that you could say, well, you know, I can get a number with three decimal points impact from one investment and a, and a number with slightly more decimal points for another investment and somehow know that I'm allocating my capital more effectively. I think this is much more nuanced than that. But we certainly have a lot of incredibly smart people working really hard to at least create better tools so that investors who do want to make a difference can identify ways in which on the issues they care about, which organizations are doing a better job. I mean, I got to think Donnell is a entrepreneur who's focused on really making a difference and not simply telling a story in order to attract capital. Um, I assume you must be nervous that it, with the lack of that discernment, people who take shortcuts can end up getting the money that, that really should go to you and the communities you serve. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, like there's the Tom shoes model of impact, like, Hey, we create impact. You buy a pair of Tom shoes. We're going to give another one away to, you know, a needy family, Warby Parker, buy some eyeglasses. We're going to give some eyeglasses away. Um, and so we're going to measure that and talk about the impact. I mean, I think, and then there's, kinds of companies that, you know, by operating and being successful, um, they create impact because their core service or product is an impact product or service that's not a layer on, on, on top of, a, of, of an otherwise normative business, right? It's not a philanthropic impact layer on top of your business operations. And so I think there needs to be some differentiation between those two kinds of operational priorities or structures. 100%. Just yesterday, there are reports that the Biden administration is working on climate-related financial risk 
executive order that would effectively set in motion a government-wide strategy that mitigates and discloses financial risks facing federal agencies, so banking, housing, agriculture regulators, um, and and also touches uh, private markets. Now, we don't know the, the contents yet of it, but um, you know, is there is that role of regulation and you know whether or not there are teeth in it? Um, is that an important forcing mechanism to get the banking, insurance, oil and gas, housing, ag, and you know federal contracting to a place where uh, where there is real uh, impact and and it's and it's being verified? One hundred percent. There is no. This is you know crowdfunding, block power, social enterprise, impact investing none of that is a substitution for regulation. And that has to take in two very important ways. Um, I think black power legitimately can make a ton of money while solving social problems. In many cases, that's not the case. If you truly want to have an impact with your investment, you're going to be investing in a company that at some point is going to rely on a progressive government to redistribute income as a source of revenue. So if you want to address homelessness in America, there's some amazing companies doing incredible work, but at some point, there's a very low ceiling at which you can charge someone uh, to pay for a homeless shelter or transitional housing. And so at some point, there's going to be the need for government to step in, and that'll be a revenue source to the company that you as, a, as an investor are investing in. Um, so on one hand, you've got to have, you can't delink the success of impact investing to make a real deep social change from progressive government using taxation to create um, redistribution, because some of that redistribution is going to end up in the revenues of the company you invest in. On the other side, when we talk about what is it going to take for companies to do real reporting and for investors to be able to be discerning? Um, again, the, the companies are going to always do the minimum they need to do to meet regulatory um, requirements. And in the case of investing, I think in many cases to satisfy the, the owners of money who say to their bankers and their investors, please make these impact investments. Well, those guys in the middle, the middlemen and women, um, they're going to do the least they can to keep those customers happy. Um, and that's just the nature of the pressures we're all under. I mean, I run an, an intermediary like that. We borrow from the banks and we lend um, to homeless shelters and soup kitchens and others. Um, and again, I just know the pressures we're under. We're not going to do more than we have to to either keep the money flowing or meet the regulation. And so regulation is absolutely crucial. I remember I was once at an impact investing meeting and there was a guy from one of the, he's an advisor to the big pension funds. And I saw this moment of clarity when I realized he, he and the war of the inhibits is the massive investment houses. Um, they're not going to move one inch further than the regulation requires them. But as soon as regulation requires them, they'll move on a dime. So I think there has to be a part of the story. And again, this is why this isn't just about investing. This is about community organizing. It's about political power um, and why a platform, a crowdfunding platform that does more than just channel money, but that actually organizes people into political constituencies for these kinds of issues is so important. Um, you know, I'd say, you know, going back to the question of, you know, how do you measure impact and so forth? I mean, two things I'd say. One is um, I'm an investor in Block Power because I know Donnell. Now, obviously, most of your investors aren't going to know him personally. But, you know, I the assurance I get that my money is going to be spent by him and his team in a way that's going to make a difference in the world doesn't come from any legal requirement I've made him sign that he will report in a certain way on his impact. It comes from my understanding that this is a team that has deep integrity um, and a business model that will enable them to pursue the kinds of profits that will pay back my loan and will do that in a way that generates substantial social environmental value. And so I think once you're relying on you know, metrics and scorecards and legally binding agreements with your investees, uh, you know, you'll be almost lost. The only time that those become relevant is when 
uh, you don't have when the team's not the right team to back anyway, who doesn't need you as an outsider to tell them what to track because their motivation is to track that stuff because it's why they do what they do. So, um, you know, on one hand, I think, again, most people don't have the ability to personally, you know, due diligence, the leadership of the places they invest in. But in the end of the day, I think putting money into the hands of people with deep integrity and, and incredible business models is ultimately what's going to happen. The last thing I'll say though, around, you know, how you, you know, Donnell's point that there's hundreds of different metrics and measurements and frameworks. Um, that was also the case in, in, you know, accounting right now, we all like, we, you know, we have one set of accounting standards in America, that's gap, the general you know accounting standards. Um, when we have our audits, we all report on revenue and net income and gross income and surpluses and equity. All those terms have meaning and they're standardized and investors can report back, you know, Donnell's venture capital investors can report back to the people who gave them money and say, we generated a, you know, 12.3% IRR per year in our last fund. What is an internal rate of return? That has a definition that's been standardized. What many people don't know is that the government, first of all, two things, the government is not responsible for that standardization. It's actually the accounting industry that got together and created those standards. Um, and the other thing people don't realize is that, you know, 150 years ago, there were no accounting standards. And so there was a time in the 19th century when big capitalism was getting going that all the different accountants had different protocols of how to measure just the financial return of a company. And it was actually the accountants who got together and said, you know, we as, a, as an accounting industry will have more value to our clients if we have standard ways of measuring these things, because then suddenly what we measure will be massively powerful in helping people allocate their capital. And so we as an industry will have more value by actually coming together and standardizing. Um, and then the government stepped in and sort of validated GAP as the, the you know, it wasn't called GAP then, but they sort of took those accountants who did their private effort and sort of came on top of it and said, yes, this work you guys are doing is standardized is the one that we're going to kind of put our weight behind, but they didn't drive it. So I think something like that has to happen here. And, you know, what's interesting is that all happened um, with a purpose that's far less inspiring than what we're trying to do. That was simply to enable people to make money more effectively. Um, imagine how much more powerful we should be when we're, we're trying to do is create the conditions in which our children have a planet to live on. Um, you would think we would be able to create the same collective action among the people making those measurements and that we'd be able to get the government involved uh, to do that, you know, if it was possible to do it when the purpose was simply to make money. By all means. And yeah, so from, you know, from trust to standards and Danelle, I think, you know, y'all are building some amazing trust with having catered to and worked with over a thousand apartment buildings, churches, synagogues, schools, replacing old wasteful uh, heating systems and, and with modern green technologies and heat pump nation. What do you think the future crowdfunding holds uh, to bring us home here? And you know, how can we better assist investors through through impact investing? I think what Anthony was saying like really helped clarify for me. I mean, I think if you look at this in the abstract, like if we're on a whiteboard, right? And your if you if you're drawing out a the business model, you've got Anthony Bug Levine, leading impact investor, who is you know continuing to look around for ways to create an impact. You've got Block Power, um, which I started to take in capital to invest, to create impact, social impact, environmental impact, health impact, right? How do we find each other? Now, one way is we encounter one another in the elite halls of Columbia Business School. I don't think that everybody should, you know, have to be in the Ivy Leagues or teaching the Ivy Leagues to like be able to connect with one another. So now we have this incredibly powerful internet platform that finds people, investors like Anthony across the country 
who are alarmed about climate change. They're alarmed about what they're seeing of racial justice. They're alarmed about healthcare and inequality and the pandemic. And you got 30 million unemployed Americans and everybody wants to do something about this because we're all sitting at home you know, watching cable news on our phones and it's just terrible, terrible news and everybody wants to do something about it. So how do we find one another, right? As people who want to invest to create change and people who want to invest capital on behalf of people who want to create change. And so now we can use the power of the internet to find one another, right? Um, it's, it's my job to ensure that our firm is appropriately communicating our impact and our values and our mission so that even if we fail right we 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 are letting investors like anthony and others know that we are trying to change the world while being great stewards of their capital and making great financial decisions taking smart risks on behalf of our mutual goals of reducing greenhouse gas helping communities that are in desperate need during this pandemic. And so the power of the Raise Green platform, I think, is, is the power of the internet to connect people, right? Which is at its core what the internet's supposed to be about. I mean, our, our lead investor, Mitch Kapoor, an early tech pioneer, right? Like IPO'd and he was like 30. I think he's like 70 now or something like that. So he's been at the cutting edge of, you know, technology and the internet for some time. And he, he remarked to me, you know, in the early days of the internet, we, you know, we were excited that it was going to connect people and be productive and be helpful. And it's not always quite clear today that that's the most productive use of the internet. You know, we're aggregating people's data and selling it to Russians or whatever's going on. And so I think, I think that what you guys are doing at Raise Green and, and, and what we all represent in this conversation is like getting back to this core idea of like, we can all connect with one another um you know through the internet and learn about one another and build trust online and then we've added this additional layer not only are we going to connect we're going to connect for the productive purpose of creating social and environmental impact i totally love it i'm so stoked about this campaign and what we're all doing together and just just couldn't be more excited and delighted um to to to, to take this thing to the next level Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining. It's a real honor and a pleasure. And uh, we will uh, we'll continue to watch with, uh, with great expectations uh, the next steps here. Uh, but, but cheers to all and thank you again so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you both. Anthony, always good yeah, to hang out. We can do it in person. See you after, see you after the pandemic, buddy. We can buddy. families together with no masks. <laughs> Later, guys. Stay safe. Stay Thanks. safe out there. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.